Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Good morning, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now, today we're talking to Mike Sparrow, who is an author, and he has written a book entitled Native, which is about white man's impact on the Native American life and culture. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Sue. Nice to be with you today. Just wondering, what actually got you started on all of this? Well, it's probably easier to uh, take it back to a career. Uh, Adele and I have lived in Swaledale for 26 years now, which perhaps is not the easiest place to build a career. Uh, But I've been extremely fortunate to have had um, an eclectic career spanning many sectors of industry uh, that's taken me all over the world. I feel very privileged to have had that period. Um, But having travelled all over the world, it did mean that I spent a lot of time away from home, a lot of time away from my family. Uh, I missed a lot of time when my kids were growing up. uh, And I got to a point in my career where I decided that I'd had enough of globe trotting, that I wanted to be at home to share time with my family. Uh, And I had a burgeoning desire to do something different, something uh, that had some social value attached to it. Um, We had, uh, 10 years ago, we had purchased uh, a property in one of the cowboy states in America, in Montana. Uh, We had got to know uh, Yellowstone National Park. We'd got to know the Great Plains. And almost inevitably, as a consequence of doing that, you start to get involved in American history. You can't help but steep yourself in American Mm. history. Uh, And their history in that part of the country is only 200 years old. Contrary to studying history in the UK, where you're looking at Saxons and the Normans and the Tudors, which is hundreds of years old, this is 200 years old. It's almost within the recollection of the oldest of our generations. Uh, And I found that fascinating. Um, And being close to Yellowstone, uh, which is, or it was, the haven for the last of the North American bison, which the American Indians called the buffalo, um, there ended up being only 50 bison left in North America uh, after the the herds were decimated by um, fleece hunters. Um, You start to think about, well, how how did that come to be? At one point, uh, the North American plains probably hosted between, and the estimates vary, but they probably hosted between 60 and 100 million buffalo. And those animals used to migrate from uh, the Texas panhandle in the south right the way up through the Great Plains and into Canada. 60 to 100 million of them. And... Then you realise when you're driving around Yellowstone National Park that this was the repository for a gene pool of just 50 buffalo that managed to survive that virtual extermination. And uh, I couldn't help but start delving into how 
that came to be. So, sorry, can you clarify that for me? Then there are only 50 remaining, are you saying? No, no. Um, in, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, President Roosevelt um, dedicated Yellowstone as the first national park in North America. And one of his principal motivations, he was a huge conservationist, uh, one of his principal motivations was to ring-fence that area as uh, a reserve for uh, the remaining buffalo. Um, and it was militarized to protect them. Uh, so the, the initial garrison that was based in Yellowstone National Park was there with principally a conservation remit, which is a, f a phenomenal thing to consider. Um, but that being the case, uh, I started to pursue this line of looking at what had happened to the buffalo, why this extermination had came, come about. And that took me to Native Americans. Uh, and it took me to the Lakota tribe, principally. Uh, and the Lakota uh, were one of the warring tribes in uh, North America. That's the way that they are perceived, along with the Apache and the Comanche. These are, uh, these are battle-hardened, tough, ruthless Indians uh, that slaughtered white people in their settlements in North America. Um, and that's very much how the history is projected. And what I found was that uh, that history was and is essentially the history of the victor. Mm. Um, it is the history that's told in American schools. Uh, and when you get into it, you find a very different story. Um, and just to, to give that some colour, the, uh, uh, the Lakota are one part of what's referred to as the Great Sioux Nation. There is the Nakota, the Dakota, and the Lakota. And that's, that's really a subdivision based on geography. Um, uh, one of those elements of Dakota was the uh, Santee Dakota, and they were based up in um, uh, Minnesota, uh, near Minneapolis, near current-day Minneapolis. Um, and inevitably, as the white man came across uh, the North American continent, they started to come into conflict. Um, the city of Minneapolis was formed and... Uh, settlers started to spread out from that base and started to go into the Great Plains. The Santee at the time, contrary to what might be people's expectation, were farmers. They weren't this nomadic um, tribe that used to hunt the buffalo. They did hunt buffalo because they had an annual hunt, but essentially they were extremely good farmers. Um, and they came into conflict with uh, the United States authorities and with white settlers, and a treaty was signed in 1861. And uh, the Santee were confined to a reservation along the Minnesota River, not far from Minneapolis. Uh, and in doing so, they were entitled to an annuity from the government. Um, what happened was that the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs agents negotiated with the traders who served the Indians on those reservations that the annuity for the tribe would not be paid to the Indians, but would be paid directly to them as the traders. Uh, 
And the traders would then extend a line of credit to the Indians so that they could purchase good from, goods from their stores. Now, what happened, bearing in mind how corrupt people can be in those environments, is that some of that money went missing and the traders put their prices up two and threefold because they mm. already had the cash in their pocket. The tribe decided that this was completely unreasonable, that they were being charged a fortune for, for basic goods that they needed in order to survive. And they rebelled against this and they petitioned the government to have that annuity taken away from the traders and given back to them, which it was. And that happened in early 1862. As soon as the tribe got the annuity back, the traders said that they would no longer extend any line of credit to the Indians at all. And in fact, they stopped providing goods to them. Now, as this headed towards winter, mm. the tribe started to get very concerned about this. They knew that they needed to stockpile in order to survive the winter. Uh, and conflict ensued. They started going out to local settlers' farmsteads and they were raiding farmsteads to try and get cattle and, and chickens and lambs and whatever they could get to stockpile their food. Then what happened is the authorities rebelled against that and tried to suppress the Indians and it turned into a full-blooded war. Can I just ask on that then? If they were before the traders were there... Presumably, though, the Indians were self-sufficient. They were self-sufficient. So what changed in that aspect then, that they were then reliant on the trade? Two things. Confinement to reservation is the first. Right. So their traditional hunting grounds fell into areas where the settlers wanted to build their farmsteads. And the trade-off was that they would receive an annuity from the government to purchase mm. foodstuffs in return for not hunting over their ancestral hunting grounds. So that... That's, that's what happened in that space. Um, so the, the American government then mobilized the army to, uh, uh, to suppress this rebellion mm. by the Santee tribe. And they did just that. And eventually they arrested uh, nearly a thousand warriors. Um, they, they had a kangaroo court and within a matter of months, 303 of those warriors were condemned to death. Um, that, uh, uh, that judgment got passed to President Lincoln at the time, who, after a process, commuted that sentence for 303 Indians to 39. In fact, in December of uh, 1862, uh, 38 Indians were hung by the neck just outside Minneapolis in what is still the biggest mass execution that's ever happened on American soil. Um, and the background to that just shows you the character of the relationship between the American authorities at the time and the Native American tribes. And I think it shows it in, in stark contrast. Mm. So you pick up that theme and then you start delving into, well, who are these people? And I found that they were people whose culture, uh, whose spirituality and whose values resonated enormously with me. 
Um, I would go so far as to say that they were some of the original environmentalists. Uh, they believe in one God. They call it the creator, Wakantanka. Um, and their whole lives revolve around their obligation to their creator and to each other. They consider all things in this world to be their brothers, whether it's the four-legged, the two-legged, the winged, the trees, the water that flows through the rivers, the mountains, all of these things they consider to be animated with the same spirit that they are. And because it's animated with the same spirit that they are, it must therefore be that those things are their brothers. And because they are their brothers, they have to treat them with reverence in everything that they do. I liked that in the book when you actually, um, even when they are, um, they've hunted an animal and they're, um, they're killing it, basically, that there is an, uh, an engagement with them and uh, a thanks to them and that sort of thing. You, you wrote that in the book. Very much yes. so. Um, and the book itself is, uh, it has a purpose. Mm. Um, and I said earlier that I, I wanted to try and find something of social value to do, having had this very privileged career. Um, and uh, that, that social value is to tell this story in this instance. It is to try and um, communicate to a wider audience the values of a traditional in Indigenous people. And I, I dare say that you could find Indigenous people with a similar sort of story in other parts of the world. Australia. Australia, for instance, yes. A, a classic example. Um, and people who read this book hopefully will pick up parts that you've just alluded to, mm. which is trying to convey the way in this, which these people endeavour to live in harmony with nature. And the respect that they give it, which unfortunately in this, um, in our civilization, it's few and far between a lot of the time. Absolutely. And they, they, they call it our mother earth mm. and our mother earth gives birth to all of these things that are our brothers. And therefore, if we take one of those lives and we take that life for sustenance of ourselves, we must give respect to that which has died in order that we can prosper. And that, that is very much their philosophy. And, and that really resonated with me. Um, and I, I find, if, if you think about it from a religious perspective, I find a lot of the contemporary institutions of religion have become very obsessed with power. They've become very obsessed with their assets, very obsessed with control of populations. And it, it's become an, a monetarized form of practicing your spirituality. With the Native Americans, they uh, traditionally, and I have to say traditionally because given what has happened to them, a lot of their lifestyles have been corrupted by the influence of white people. Um, I, I have to say that their traditional way of life is very much about that respect. It's a very holistic way of building your life around a spiritual belief. You get up in the morning and you pay homage to Morning Star and thank Morning Star for the dawning of a new day. 
You give thanks for the food that you have in the morning. You ask for the Creator's support in what you're going to do during the day. All of these things are built into their daily life. Um, so it's not as though you go to church on a Sunday and then your religion for the week is complete. This is a, a cultural embodiment of what you believe. Um, so someone reading the book, I hope, will pick up those themes, which to some will be of interest, and I fully accept that to others it won't be. Mm. Um, some will pick it up as simply a good adventure story. Jolly good read. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Well, it is, it is. I'm, uh, I'm on, I haven't finished it completely, but I'm gripped by it, certainly. Well, I, I think the way that you get people to pay attention to a subject is to get them emotionally involved in it. Uh, and I contrast that with a documentary. Um, mm. And documentaries can be very informative, but they can be quite dry and sterile in the way in which they communicate a story. It can be quite shocking in parts, though. It's quite gruesome. And that, that is That's the truth. Life. That's the truth, yes. It's the truth of what happened. Mm. But if, if you create personalities who the reader can connect with uh, and you do it in a way that crafts those personalities so that you either hate them mm. or you love them or you feel some other emotion strongly towards those people, then it influences the way in which you absorb the story. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do with the book. I've tried to create some characters in there who are quite potent characters um, to bring this story of the history of these people alive. Um, and the first book, Native, uh, really revolves around the period when uh, white settlers were beginning to flood across the Great Plains and they were beginning to come into conflict with the Plains tribes. And bear in mind, um, a lot of the tribes in North America had already had this conflict and had already been subjugated. Mm -hmm. This was the first time that the Plains tribes had really been, been, affected, uh, been affected by this. So I'm, I'm trying to bring that alive uh, in, in this book, in, uh, in Native... And that, that first book is all about um, the decimation of the buffalo herds. Mm. And when you get into that history of the buffalo herds that I was alluding to earlier, you find that it was a deliberate strategy by the American government at the time to take the buffalo out of the Great Plains. Two reasons for that. The first was that in doing so, they destroyed the way of life of the Plains tribes. The Plains tribes' life revolved around the migration of the buffalo. They had, uh, they'd got horses by now, and they were able to follow the, the buffalo herds, and they were able to hunt from horseback. And this made them one of the strongest tribes in North America. They were able to sustain themselves through winter in a way that the farming tribes were not able to do. Mm. They could follow these herds. They could migrate with them. They were nomadic. And therefore, if you can take out that supply of their food, then that is one way. 
controlling them. In which you can control them, precisely so. Mm. The second thing was the uh, the government wanted to get rid of the buffalo from the plains because the settlers wanted to bring cattle mm. onto the Great Plains, and cattle were considered to be a better foodstuff for the population on the east coast of America and, and elsewhere around the world at the time. So it was a, a very deliberate strategy, and that's reflected in the first book. But it starts to lead you into the second phase of this deliberate strategy to uh, not necessarily annihilate the um, Plains Indians because politically that would have been unacceptable. Unacceptable, definitely. Although to some it may have been desirable, it would have been politically unacceptable. And the second phase was confinement to reservations. So the, the essence of treaties like the Fort Laramie Treaty was to confine the Indians into progressively smaller areas so that you could release their traditional ancestral uh, hunting grounds for settlement uh, by white settlers. Um, the, the third piece of that strategy uh, comes in my second and third books in the Manifest Destiny series, of which Native is the first book. And the third strategy was uh, boarding schools. And what the government found was that although they destroyed the buffalo herds and although they confined the Indians to reservations, the Indians were still not assimilating Western culture, which was the intent. The intent was that they were to um, uh, embrace Christianity. They were to forsake their traditional way of life, their traditional culture. They were to learn to speak English. They were to wear uh, contemporary um, European clothing so that they could assimilate more normally into the general population at the time. And the Indians steadfastly refused to do that. They wouldn't send their children to the schools that were put on the reservations. They wanted to teach them in the traditional way. And the traditional way was that when a child was young, the grandparents taught them because the grandparents were the repositories of their history. They never wrote anything down, these Indians. They didn't, they didn't have the means to do that. They used to use pictograms to record historical events, but all of their history was oral. Mm. And the people that had the oral history were the older people because they had got the memory for that. So the oral history was passed on by the grandparents. And I, sh- I should say an interesting fact with this tribe was that it was matriarchal. Um, and it was matriarchal for a reason. The Lakota believed strongly that a man is selfish and that a woman makes decisions based on the best interests of the future generations. And for that reason, the whole culture of the tribe was centred around a council that was female. I didn't know that. I thought you might like that. No, I like that. (laughs) Um, And when when the... uh, American government first came to negotiate with the Lakota. They said they wanted to be taken to the chief so that they could have a discussion with the chief. And uh, the Indians took uh, the American negotiator to see the the grandmothers in the the lodge. And 
uh, the negotiator said, I, I don't want to see these old ladies. I want to see your chief. And there was huge debate about this. What are we going to do? Because they don't understand that we make the decisions here. So the, the grandmothers uh, nominated an individual who would be their intermediary, who would be their negotiator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the American government then recognized that as a person that they then called the chief. So within Lakota culture, this this idea of a chief is not the way that white populations see it. This is, this is a matriarchal society. And the matriarchal society was very centered on passing its values on to the next generations. And therefore the grandmothers were very much involved in the teaching of the children. So that the, the, their most influential time in their lives, the grandmothers were giving them the values. They were giving them the history mm. to take forward in their lives. And then life skills were taught at a later stage by the parents. Yes. So if you wanted to learn to hunt, then your father would teach you to hunt. If you wanted to learn to weave baskets and to make um, blankets, then your mother would teach you how to weave baskets and make blankets. And the Lakota tried to hang on to this tradition. They steadfastly refused to embrace the white man's schools and the white man's uh, religion. And... Um, the American government got fed up with this and they said, this is not going to work. We, we, we aren't making progress. The only way, and they characterized it as the only way to save these people, to save future generations, is to go in and forcibly take those children from their parents and put them into boarding schools a sufficient distance away that they can't go back from school in the evening and be indoctrinated in their own culture. They have to be at a boarding school at distance. And in 1882, the boarding uh, boarding school system was formally introduced to remove Indian children from their parents, to assimilate them into Western culture. And their hair was cut and their clothes were burnt and they were told that they could no longer practice their traditional ceremonies. And um, uh, some of them would stay at these schools for seven to 10 years. In the holidays, they'd be sent out to uh, ranches, to farms, where they would work through the summer. So not, that, not even allowed to go back to no, no, their no, homes there? No, because they would be indoctrinated into their traditional culture. So when they finally got sent back to their people, they couldn't speak their own language. They didn't look like traditional Lakota people. They couldn't remember their parents in some instances and their families couldn't recognize them as being the people, the children that they'd lost. Some of their parents weren't there. They died. Um, and you then had this generation that is trapped. They're not recognized by their own people and yet they're not accepted by mm. Western culture either because although they look the part, you can tell that they're Indians. And this... This trauma of the experience of progressively being subjugated, confined, and then having your culture forcibly ripped from you is deeply ingrained in uh, Native American tribes now. Um, And to write this book, I spent time on uh, Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, trying to understand more of the history trying to understand the culture and the spirituality of these people so 
that I could reflect it in the book with some authenticity. Mm. And I felt that authenticity, given the subject matter, was vital. Yes, very important. It had to be respectful. Mm. Um, And in order to be respectful, it had to be as close to the truth as it could be in reflecting the way that this traditional culture was. And there are a lot of people within the tribe now who are uh, trying to reclaim their historical culture, trying to teach the children the spirituality. But uh, it's a huge uphill struggle. They are uh, a nation who are desperately poor. Um, Other than Haiti, uh, the uh, counties where the Lakota live are the poorest places in this world uh, which are not at war. Mm. Um, And that's in one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, These people have um, uh, endemic problems, uh, medical problems from heart disease to diabetes to everything else. The, The rate of those diseases in their community is two, three, and four times higher than the national average. They have five times the national average uh, uh, teenage suicide rate. So this is a deeply psychologically, socially disadvantaged community that has a heritage that uh, I think has so much value to offer. It has so many messages about the way that we ought to live our lives the respect that we should pay to one another, that I wanted to reflect that in the book. Um, Quite depressing, really, when you... It is a a deeply depressing story, but Mm. if you delve below that and you you look at their values and what they mean and their relevance Mm. to the current world. In, In the last month, we've had the IPCC report produced, the biggest report that's ever been produced on a multinational basis about our environment... Mm. And here are people who knew how to live in the environment. They knew how to respect it. Their messages about um, uh, things like the pipelines that are being put through North America at the moment for crude oil and saying we must protect and not contaminate our environment anymore. I think these are messages that are very poignant Mm. in a modern world. Uh, And as I say, some people will pull those messages out of the book. Some people will pull the adventure story out of it. But also, I think people will hopefully pull some of the history out. So I've tried to set uh, a fictional story Mm. against um, a a reasonably factual historical background so that you, you can... You can read this and get a sense of what actually happened and why it happened um, and some of the strategies that were employed to mm. try and subjugate these people. Um, and uh, if, if people enjoy that, that would be marvellous. If it motivates some people to go and learn a little more, then mm. that will be even better. Um, and... Uh, Adele and I decided that as we were writing this, this was a cause we felt passionately about um, and that we would put uh, our proceeds from the book uh, to a charity uh, called One Spirit who seek to help particularly the youth on Pine Ridge Mm -hmm. Reservation. 
So hopefully it will generate some fiscal advantage as a consequence uh, yes. of this book now being available. And we'll see what happens with the others in due course. Yes. Well, that's, that will be really good. Um, just, I'm, I'm, I'm quite stunned by it all, really. There's a lot more to it than I'd realised, definitely. I think the, the interesting thing is I've, I've done uh, book tours in the US um, and uh, I really enjoy doing them, actually. You, uh, quite often, rather than just the two hours you're supposed to spend in a bookstore, mm. Adele and I have spent a whole day in bookstores talking to people uh, about the book and getting to talk to them about the history. Um, and almost almost exclusively, people say to us, this is a history that needs to be told in our country, in, in America. In America, definitely. Um, and the kids come up to me and they, they say, we're never taught these things. We, we don't hear about this. Um, the older generation say this is a blemish on our history that needs to have more prominence, mm. that needs to be recognised. Um, and uh, I, I think th- that makes me feel as though there is some Certainly value to what I've done. Yes. And if I set out five years ago when I finished my last career to achieve something of value uh, and people are telling me this, then... It's a start. It may be going in the right direction, I hope. Mm. Um, and I hope to do some more of it. I love writing now. Um, and uh, I've got a number of plans for other things that I will write about. I've got rhino poaching um, and endangered species poaching, which is something I feel very passionate, passionately about. And um, you've been out to Africa actually researching for that, haven't you? I have. The, the last two years, um, I've been backwards and forwards to South Africa on a number of occasions, meeting people in the conservation community, meet, meeting people who are involved in anti-poaching. Um, uh, and it's just the most desperately sad story. Uh, and it's something that doesn't need to happen. Mm. It simply needs political will to address it, as so many things do. Um, the really sad thing about rhino poaching, and this, this is one of the most iconic animals that you could think of on our planet. Mm. Uh, if someone said to you, give me your top five wild animals in the world, I'd be quite surprised if the rhino isn't amongst it. And yet um, the, the current view from those who really understand this problem is that if poaching is not addressed in the next few years, by 2024, this animal will be extinct in the wild, which will mean that my grandchildren will never see a rhino in the wild. Um, uh, and I think that is criminal mm. that that could be allowed to happen. Um, and they're the tip of the iceberg. In the last uh, six years, Kenya has lost a third of its elephant population to uh, poaching. 
uh, lion is now being poached in large numbers. Uh, tiger was virtually poached to extinction and is just beginning to recover slightly, but that was for lion bone for Chinese medicine. And now, now that um, that can't be obtained, they're turning to lion. So prides of lion in South Africa are being poisoned in order that the bones can be hacked out and sent to the Far East. Um, these things don't need to happen. Uh, if the South African government, uh, if the global political community, and this is a political issue, you've got, you've got uh, NGOs from all over the world that are trying to influence this, that are raising money, that are working hard every day. But if the politicians won't act to preserve the species, then they're going to go. An extraordinary statistic is that between South Africa and Brazil, uh, those two countries have 80% of the world's biodiversity. So you could concentrate your effort on um, stopping uh, uh, poaching Mm. in those two countries and you would have a dramatic effect on the preservation of the global biodiversity. Um, and I hope I can bring some attention to that through the book that I'm now writing uh, about rhino poaching, as well as giving people a jolly good story as well. <laughs> right, okay. So it sounds like there's no shortage of subject matter for you then, uh, every all these day. causes. <laughs> <laughs> every day I get in the car or walk down the street, um, I'm find something else that I could write about. Mm. I think the challenge is uh, not finding what to write about next. It's concentrating de- de- on deciding the, yes. which of the things I would like to write about mm. um, is going to take precedence. Uh, it's good to have a lot of ideas, but I guess you've got to narrow it down. You have, and you've got to be able to access the information mm. in depth in order to write about it in a credible way. Um, writing about these things purely from the point of view of emotion, mm. I think is unconvincing. You have to get to the facts. You have to do the research. You have to build a story uh, on facts that when people read it, if they drill into it, they can understand that there is foundation to what you're saying. Um, and hopefully it will draw people into. Uh, learning a little bit more about these subjects. I think they're all important to all of us. I think Mm. the preservation of our world's biodiversity, of our environment, of traditional cultures, of values and spirituality that are centred on family and community are all such important things. And if we can find some signposts about how to do that better, then I think that's of great value. Yes, definitely. And all the research that you put in makes it very believable when you're reading about it, certainly. So I'm I'm interested. I know this is um, slightly an aside to, to the background of your books and your topics, but I'm interested in your personal discipline to actually get the writing done. (laughs) <laughs> do you do you have um I just know myself we spoke when you first arrived I find writing for me is not an easy process I wondered do you have a, a time of day that you do it um do you allocate a certain amount of time or are you very flexible It's an interesting question because I started this as an 
absolute amateur. Mm. Um, I suspect I work differently now uh, to when I first put finger to keyboard five years ago. The first thing I'd say is I, I don't have any difficulty with the content. Um, I'm very lucky in that the story forms in my mind. It can form uh, as I'm shopping, as I'm walking the dog on the moor, um, as I'm sitting watching the television. Uh, this story forms in my head, and as I start to write, I know where I'm going with the story, and quite often it just pours out. The control that I have to exert is the quality of what mm. I put on the paper, as it were. Um, sometimes I don't even have a structure to what I'm going to write. I let the structure evolve. Um, and I let it evolve sometimes around the research that I'm doing. So the research might draw it in a particular direction. Um, but I don't have a time that I sit down and do it. The time is the time when my mind feels ready to put the thoughts on paper. Uh, and I will have weeks where I do absolutely no writing at all. And then I will have other periods where I start writing and I have to live inside that story and I cannot do anything else because otherwise it dilutes my focus on the story. So whether Adele at the time thinks that she's living with someone completely different, living with the characters that are in my books, <laughs> I honestly don't know. But I will sit from as soon as I put my breakfast knife and fork down to 8.30 at night uh, and I might stop for a bowl of soup. Otherwise, I will just keep going at it. And I can do that for weeks on end. Um, at other times... I will sit and write a chapter and that chapter is the succinct piece that's been in my head. So I don't have a formula mm. is, is, no. is the answer, but I consider myself quite lucky that I seem to have uh, an aptitude to be able to immerse just, yourself just let in it, it flow, mm. I think. Immerse yourself in it when it's there. No, interesting. I, I, um, I've always wondered about that. I don't think that's necessarily characteristic of everybody that writes. I've spoken to other people who have may, maybe would set aside, I don't know, writing a certain quantity each time they sit down or a certain number of hours in the day and discipline themselves that way, but not, um, it sounds... I can't much, do that. When, no. when the story is ready to be told, mm. I've got to You've tell You've got it. to get it all down. I've got to tell it. It's yes. there. It's got to come out. Um, and and it, uh, it may seem strange, but sometimes parts of this seem to come through me rather than from me. Mm. And occasionally I write things. So that there are sections of the book in Native, particularly around the Native American um, spirituality, mm. that when I've written them, I don't recognize the words. Mm. But when I read them back, I think, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's really re rewarding. Yes. Uh, and yes. it makes it fun. Mm. 
Well, I'd just like to say thank you very much. That's been a very varied and instructional conversation (laughs) for me, certainly. And I'm sure it will be really interesting to our listeners. Well, it's it's generous of you. I hope your listeners enjoy it. I'm sure they will do. So thank you very much, Mike. No worries. This is Susan signing out from Inside Yorkshire. 